Welcome to Macquarie Street, the national political podcast coming to you from the crucible of Australian democracy. Here's your host, Lyle Shelton. The Prosecutor General has been in public many times about this case, and one year ago in interview in Helsingin Sanomat, uh, she stated that if Päivirasanen is convicted, it is not necessary to take the Bibles away from the libraries and it is still okay to cite them. But what is not okay is to agree with the Bible. Okay, hello and thanks for your company. If anyone thinks there is no culture war against the followers of Jesus Christ, I hope this special edition of the Macquarie Street political podcast will debunk that notion once and for all. Today we look at three legal cases and see how forces in politics, the media and the law are working to drive Christians and their views about marriage and family out of the public square. The most prominent uh, case that we'll look at is that of the Australian Cardinal George Pell. A new book lays bare how he was framed with heinous child sex abuse allegations before finally being exonerated by the High Court of Australia. Later in the show, I speak with the author of that book, Jared Henderson, about how an innocent man spent 406 days in prison for crimes he did not commit. But it is not just in Australia that Christians uh, are under attack. What you have just heard in that cold opening is the voice of a member of the Parliament of Finland, Pavi Rassanen, talking about a legal case brought against her for quoting the Bible on Twitter. Last week, Rassanen was dragged before a court in Helsinki to face charges of hate speech because she tweeted Romans 1, 24-27. Now, Rassanen's 2019 tweet aimed at her own Lutheran Church leadership's support of a homosexual pride week sparked a police investigation which also saw her charged for comments in a 2004 church pamphlet and a 2019 radio interview. The former government minister and leader of a Christian political party spent six hours in court earlier this week with her co-accused, a Lutheran bishop. The pair are charged with the crime of ethnic agitation under the section of war crimes and crimes against humanity in the Finnish criminal code. I don't know whether you caught what Rassanen was saying in the opening clip. I'm going to play it again. Please listen carefully. The Prosecutor General has been in public many times about this case and one year ago in interview in Helsingin Sanomat uh, she stated that if Päivirasanen is convicted it is not necessary to take the Bibles away from the libraries and it is still okay to cite them. But what is not okay is to agree with the Bible. Now, did you catch that? There is no need to take the Bible off library shelves. It is just not okay to agree with certain sections of the Bible. Folks, this is chilling stuff. These are serious times for Christians. Up until about five minutes ago in history, Western culture agreed with Christianity that homosexual acts were not a pathway to human flourishing. Now, legitimate arguments can be made about the poor treatment of same-sex attracted people in the past, and I do not seek to defend that. 
Although in my decades of involvement with the Christian church community here in Australia, kindness and respect has always been shown to same-sex attracted people, and that is very much the culture of the modern church, despite our disagreements over acceptable practice. What is clear though, is that while the Bible contains ethical prohibitions on a range of behaviors, its central ethic of love is fully fleshed out in the New Testament. Sadly, intolerant elements of our secular society are seeking to destroy Christianity and its place in the public square. The new anything goes sexual ethic sees sexuality tied up with identity and therefore any prohibition is seen as an affront, even as harmful to an individual or identity group. The rainbow political movement more than any other is being used by cultural Marxists to achieve their long held goal of destroying Christianity and the family. Rassanen could well face prison or severe fines uh, for, for what she's been charged with. Now, the choice for faithful Christians will be either to capitulate the route taken by the Lutheran Church of Finland or the path of principle for the truth of human biology, reproduction and family by standing with the Bible. What happens in a Helsinki courtroom over coming weeks will sharpen the minds of Christians around the world. The court is adjourned until February 14. I'll be sure to keep you updated. Now, the second case, the second legal case I want to highlight involves me. Many of you will be aware that I'm being sued by two LGBTIQ drag queens because I wrote a blog saying they were dangerous role models for children. This was after the drag queens were placed in front of children at a drag queen storytime event at a public library. I stand by my comments which were motivated by my Christian religious beliefs that we should speak up to protect children from potential harm. The case has dragged on for two years and has cost $70,000 and there is no end in sight. I'm so grateful to so many of you who have crowdfunded my case because without you, I would not have been able to afford the excellent legal defense that I have through the Human Rights Law Alliance. Now, the Morrison government has introduced a religious discrimination bill to try and protect freedom of religion in Australia. Protection was promised in the wake of the 2017 same-sex marriage plebiscite and has been on the go slow ever since. Last week, I was able to present my case briefly to the Senate's Legal and Constitutional Affairs Legislation Committee in Canberra, which is inquiring into the religious discrimination bill. As you will see in what I'm about to show you, the chair of the committee, Sarah Henderson, had been forewarned about my appearance. Before I um, ask you to make your opening statement, I would just ask you, um, I'm aware of your particular um, legal proceedings. Mm. I'm, I, um, you're invited to appear in the capacity to respond to elements concerning um, this bill and this inquiry. So I would just not ask you to make any particular adverse reflections in relation to that, that particular matter. I know you hold, um, that's a, very passionate issue for you, but I would just ask that you um, be very aware of the issues in relation to adverse reflections. Uh, thank, thank you, Chair. I, I, my, my statement just gives a bit of context to that legal matter and why I think uh, this bill is deficient in not um, covering that. So if, if, I, if I can, I've got a one minute statement, if that's okay. Uh, thank you. Just if you can take on board my, my request. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to appear today. Uh, I'm being sued by two LGBTIQ plus drag queens for saying they are dangerous role models for children. My religious beliefs motivated me to speak up after a drag queen story time in a public library. One drag queen was a woman identifying as a man, the other a man identifying as a woman. 
The woman was crowdfunding on Facebook to have her breasts cut off. Uh, the man's drag name referenced a homosexual sex act. After writing a blog about the dangers of these role models to children, Shelton, I was sued Mr. under Queensland's vilification Mr Shelton, laws. if I could just ask you to refer to that dispute in general terms, um, rather than making adverse reflections on the other parties in those proceedings. Sure. Um, so if you could just skip over the... Not willing to be adverse, just citing the fact. But yes, well, I will, uh, no, we'll there, yeah. well, that's my judgment is that there is some adverse reflection. So if I could just ask you to speak in general terms and not specify issues which are at issue in those legal proceedings, please. Thank you. Uh, in my view, the, um, the, the uh, deficient laws uh, is allowing the shutting down of speech that people don't like using... Uh, taxpayer-funded lawyers. The case has so far cost me $70,000 in legal fees and uh, almost two years of angst. Despite warnings during the marriage plebiscite that this would happen, the bill before you today does not protect those who are speaking up to protect children. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Mr Shelton. The committee, which contained two fierce advocates for indoctrinating children into gender-fluid ideology, Senator Janet Rice from the Greens and Labor Senator Louise Pratt, was not interested in my case. I was asked just one general follow-up question, but was able to make a point about the Christian view of gender and the consequences for freedom of speech that have flowed from the change to the definition of marriage. Take a listen. Look, as, as I said, um, Senator, in my opening statement and in my submission, I, um, obviously I'd support the bill um, going forward because it's better than nothing. But uh, there's a, a big gap in terms of um, fulfilling, I guess, the promises that were made by the leaders of the, um, the campaign to change the definition of marriage, that no one else's freedom of speech would be affected. And here we are just a few years down the track and you can't have a debate about gender fluidity and, and what's appropriate for children uh, without being sued um, and taken through uh, various bodies like the Queensland Civil and Administrative Tribunal so I, I think protections for freedom of speech need to be put in freedom that, that is based on uh, religious beliefs, as mine are. Um, the, uh, the Christian religion uh, has a belief in gender that accords with the scientific belief that uh, the genders are binary. And if we can't talk about that in terms of the protection of children, if that's not protected by this bill, then I think there's a real problem. Now, sadly, as I told the Senate inquiry, the Morrison government's religious discrimination bill provides no protection for those of us who speak up for children in the face of the lies of gender-fluid, radical LGBTQI indoctrination of children. We have a long battle ahead to convince politicians, even in the Liberal Party, of the need to protect freedom of speech and freedom of religion in this country. Well, it was a great privilege to speak with the executive director of the, and founder of the Sydney Institute, Jared Henderson, about his new book on the persecution of Cardinal George Pell. Cardinal Pell uh, is one of Australia's most courageous public Christians, and he spent 406 days in jail for a crime he did not commit. Well, it's my privilege today on the Macquarie Street Political Podcast to be joined by Jared Henderson, who is the Executive Director of the Sydney Institute. It's a very influential forum for discussion and debate. Uh, Jared is the author of uh, many books, including Menzies Child, which is a history of the Liberal Party in Australia, and also uh, the author of a book which I enjoyed some years ago called uh, Santa Maria, A Most Unusual Man and uh, a Great uh, Inspiration. Uh, Jared, uh, thanks very much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Lyle. 
Jared, your, your latest book is Cardinal Pell, The Media Pylon and Collective Guilt, and that's what we want to talk about today. But before we get into the details of the Cardinal Pell trial and all that surrounds this, um, I just wanted to set the scene. Obviously, this um, opens up a discussion that is very sensitive for, for many people who have been sexually abused. And of course, there's been this scourge of child sexual abuse in Australia, sadly, in many of our churches and elsewhere. And um, I just want to set the context here because I think there's been some um, misconceptions. Obviously, the, the first misconception we want to do away with is the fact that any of us would tolerate this. It's heinous, and I think that goes without saying. But in the book, you point out, um, and I think you get these figures from the various, uh, might be the Royal Commission itself, that between 1950 and 2015, there were 4,445 alleged cases of child sexual abuse uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, 4,765 claims, and that most of these occurred between 1950 and 1989, well before people like Cardinal Pell rose to really prominent positions of leadership. And also you quote the Honourable Justice McClellan, the chair of the Royal Commission into institutional uh, abuse of children, where he says the number of children who are sexually abused in familial, i.e. family situations or other circumstances, far exceeds those uh, abused in institutions, which, of course, include the church. Well, that was in the conclusion of the Royal Commission. Justice Peter McClellan said that, that it was mainly in familial circumstances within families that most child abuse occurred. Uh, the problem was that the Royal Commission was the Royal Commissioner in, into institutional responses to child sexual abuse. So the Royal Commission only had a remit to look at institutions like the Catholic Church or other churches or uh, it didn't really look much at government institutions. It looked at some of them. It focused mainly on the churches. But they were looking at institutional responses, not what was happening now or what had happened a month or even some years ago. They're looking at how institutions responded to the issue. Um, and in relation to the Catholic Church, I mean, those figures are there, but, um, and I mean, the, the uh, child sexual abuse within elements of the Catholic Church historically was quite absolutely scandalous and very yeah. serious crimes. But I make the point of that figure of 4,445, that figure. Now, what that amounts to is about of the complainants within institutions, within religious institutions, not all institutions, but religious institutions, something like, 60% um, were in Catholic institutions. So these are complaints, they're not all established facts. Yeah. But at the time, the Catholic Church would have had about 80% of children in institutions because, as you know, the Catholics ran their own school system. They had more orphanages, they had hospitals. So in a sense, um, the figures sort of focused, and the Royal Commission overwhelmingly focused on the Catholic Church and to some extent the Anglican Church. But the figures show that whilst the, the, the figures within the Catholic Church are very serious, as a proportion of people who are in religious institutions, um, it's no higher than anyone else. And on the evidence that I could see, it was lower than the others. But they're still very serious crimes. But as you also point out, they're essentially historical crimes. So what the, what the Royal Commission was really looking at is that events that had occurred within institutions between about 25 and 45 years prior to the Royal Commission commencing. So these were historical cases. Um, some of them overwhelming, overwhelmingly serious, obviously, but many of the allegations against that were made were with respect to people who had died because they, they, they were historical cases. 
the, the Royal Commission did not look um, at anything that was current within families, and it didn't focus much about current uh, current allegations within institutions either. The focus was predominantly historical. And I think we would agree that uh, wherever child sexual abuse occurs, whether it's in the church or anywhere, and, and no matter how far back it's gone, it, it's right and proper that this has been investigated. So not trying to sweep that under the carpet, but just to make the point, though, I think there's a perception in the Australian community when they look at Catholic priests or other church leaders that there's somehow a cloud hanging over these people. Well, the worst offender within the Catholic Church, probably, or there might be one or, one or two others, was Gerald Risdale, who's the best known. Now, Ridsdale's been in prison since 1995, and he's still there, and he's unlikely to ever come out. So many of these cases are acted upon. As I point out in the book, the Catholic Church made many errors. If you look at the state of Victoria where Ridsdale was involved, but so did Victoria Police. Ridsdale was, offending to, uh, was known to Victoria Police 20 years before he was arrested. He had actually, according to the evidence, he had actually assaulted a son of a police officer. This was well known, and I make the point in the book that it was well known. Uh, the Royal Commission sort of tended to evade the issue about Victoria Police and other police forces. But if you go back historically, I mean, sadly, some of these crimes weren't regarded then the, the way they are now. And Victoria Police's uh, actions through the, uh, through the 70s or the 60s, 70s and 80s was highly remiss because the two worst clerical offenders within the Catholic Church were a guy called Monsignor John Day and Ridsdale. Day was never charged, although police knew about him, and it took them years to charge Ridsdale. And from the moment he was charged, Ridsdale pleaded guilty. So Ridsdale has pleaded guilty to every allegation. Uh, and that's what the reason why he's still in prison because new allegations are made, he pleads guilty and he stays on. So the Catholic Church was remiss, other churches were remiss, so were government institutions, in particular the police forces and some other institutions. And it's I, I make this point in the book that within Tasmania, where the Royal Commission didn't look, it looked at a non-Catholic school, look at Hutchins School in Tasmania, did a case study on it, which I think had a, it's an independent Christian school. I think it had a background in the Anglican Church. But there was rife offending within the state education department's government schools in Tasmania, and the Royal Commission didn't look at it. And there's now an independent inquiry in Tasmania looking at this very matter, which the Royal Commission avoided. Um, but Teachers within government schools were moved by the Education Department in Tasmania from school to school. There were covers up. There are now a number of people in prison. There are other charges pending. But to some extent, the Royal Commission, I think the general focus to people who were looking at it or following it, I think a lot of people would have thought this was an inquiry into the Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, and it appeared that way, and it wasn't completely that way, but that was the emphasis, and in particular, Cardinal Pell, to whom you, you refer and who the book focuses yeah. on. I mean, no one no one was quizzed the way Cardinal Pell was quizzed. For the last appearance, it was 19 hours. You add it all up, it's close to 30 hours. And no evidence was ever produced to involve him in any covering up, although allegations were made, but the Royal Commission couldn't produce any evidence. Yeah. And I make the point in the book that some of their findings against Pell are simply contradictory. And I pointed out, and no one's come back to me and said that's wrong. Mm. And others denied him due process because they made findings against him 
well, they'd ask him to explain what happened in these circumstances. So that's the way it all ended up. But you go back to your original point, I mean, I think the whole of society is, um, is to blame for what occurred historically and to some extent what, what's occurring today. Uh, um, and uh, fortunately, action was, was taken. And the, within the Catholic Church, uh, internationally, the first person to take action uh, was Cardinal Pell in Melbourne, followed very closely by his fellow bishops in Sydney. So from around 1996-1997 in Melbourne and Sydney and the rest of the Australian Catholic Church, the matter was being looked to. Now, you you go to that film Spotlight on the Catholic Church in Boston, that film, um, or that that issue became prominent in, in, uh, in the early part of this century, but 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 the Catholic Church within Australia had gone in before the American Church, before the Irish Church, before the French and German churches, but even so it copped a, a large amount of the blame within the Royal Commission uh, for what were historical crimes, yeah. That, that's right. No, and thank you. That, that context is really important and, and very much lost in the narrative. And this is why I think your book is such a valuable contribution because you go into the detail very forensically. And I want to, I'll come in a moment to some of the reasons why there was this sort of get Pell um, uh, pile on. But um, let's sort of fast forward now, you know, past the uh, Melbourne response where Cardinal Pell as Archbishop, well, then Archbishop of Melbourne, instituted the Melbourne response, was starting to clean house uh, and, and doing, you know, a pretty good job uh, in conjunction and collaboration with Victoria Police. But in 2013, of March 2013, the Victorian Police set up Operation Tethering. Um, no complaints had been made against Cardinal Pell. Uh, what was going on there, in your view? Well, as you point out, early on uh, in, in, the, in the 1990s, the Victoria Police had cooperated with the Catholic Church in, in Melbourne to uh, resolve this problem. But there was a change in management in the Victoria Police and the Victoria Police had behaved very badly and in not investigating certain crimes. And mainly Graham Ashton, who became the yeah. chief commissioner, turned on, on the Catholic Church dropped the cooperation before this part. There was a state parliamentary inquiry going on and he dropped the yes. cooperation. And that, that's where he exaggerated the um, suicide numbers allegedly as a result of um, clergy sexual sexual abuse. Well, in, in relation to the Ballarat Catholic Diocese, it, they, the figures were gross, grossly exaggerated. Mm. Uh, Commissioner Ashton knew about this but didn't make, didn't come or didn't this wasn't revealed until three years later when the Australian got a story about it and he had given evidence to the Victorian Parliamentary Inquiry in secret. So this matter was covered up. And what what you had here was a very bad police police performance. And then what happened was that Commissioner Ashton essentially turned on Cardinal Pell, um, who had been Archbishop of Melbourne until twenty and when he went to Sydney and he turned on Pell and they set up Operation Tethering, which was an inquiry looking for a complainant. They didn't have a complainant. Mm. Uh, They didn't have a complainant for a year and the first complainant they had had come out of a psychiatric hospital the day before and that complaint didn't last and it wasn't until 2015 that they got a complaint and those complaints really came after a lot of very hostile television uh, Mm. uh, programs and reporting uh, principally on the ABC uh, and to some Mm. extent in the Melbourne Age in the newspaper, um, but so they set up they set up something looking for a crime, and uh, it took them um, took them over two years to get one serious complainant. And as you say, the the media reporting was pretty 
um, crucial to uh, getting or even soliciting these complaints, it would seem. Louise Milligan on the ABC, um, in, in particular, David Maher and others. Uh, tell us about their role in, um, in, in Operation Tethering, getting to where it ultimately got to in terms of laying charges against the Cardinal. Well, I come to them briefly. The point is also that Victoria Police uh, actually advertised for uh, mm, that's right for potential complainants and victims, and they, this was covered in the yeah. Melbourne Age. There, all of a sudden, they put out a leak on on a Christmas Eve and said that you know anyone had been offended in the cathedral between these two dates, and the dates were the dates when Cardinal Pell was the Archbishop of Melbourne. So they went they went looking for complainants in relation to this allegation for which Pell went. Con- went to trial about crimes within St. Patrick's Cathedral. And apart from the one complainant they already had, no one came forward. They didn't get any complainants because no one had been abused. I mean, it just didn't happen. So they yeah. went with the one that they had and the one that related to another person uh, who, who had died and before he died, accidentally, he had said he'd never been sexually assaulted by anyone. Uh, going back to the journalist, I mean, the, this starts essentially with David Marr's book on Pell, which was a kind of small autobiography, but mainly focused on allegations of child sexual assault. And then Louise Milligan took this up on the ABC with a full 30-minute program on 7.30 about allegations made about Pell, and then her book came out later, and it all just steamrolled. So you had the situation where the ABC was using two Pell antagonists who were hostile to Pell, Louise Milligan and David Marr, also as commentators on the case. So you had... They were called in to comment on the Pell case in spite of the fact they'd written very hostile books about Pell. I mean, this was simply unprofessional journalism. At the time, I raised this with ABC management. As usual, the ABC dismissed it, says there was no problem here. But you had this great build-up and other other journalists as well timed in, but joined in. But the principal ones were David Marr and Louise Milligan. And, um, I mean, David Marr is hostile to the Catholic Church. He's also hostile to the Angam Church, Louise Milligan was hostile to the Catholic Church. And yeah. in particular, Louise Milligan has a Catholic background and a lot of, some Catholics oppose Pell. But the reason why they opposed Pell essentially was because, not partly because he was a Catholic. Sorry about that, I thought I had that turned off. Partly because he was a Catholic, but predominantly because he was a conservative Catholic. Yeah. And that's the point. I mean, what yeah. the, the, whole, the whole criticism, the people who were marked out in all this were not, um, not the Liberals in the American sense of the term, but mm. the Conservatives. And the ABC had a shocking case of child abuse within its own mm. organisation. Mm. Never covered that. You had people like Bob Bob Ellis and others who, after their deaths, were revealed as people who were pedophiles. So was so was um, Richard Neville in his book Paper. He revealed himself. The ABC mm. never worried about that. What yeah. they focused on was offenders or possible offenders or alleged offenders who were Conservatives. Uh, Pell happened to be, he was a Catholic, but he's also a conservative Catholic. Yeah, so clear, clear, it would seem a clear case of bias here, and I will, we'll come back to that towards the end of this discussion. During the course of uh, all of this, you were one of the few people who would um, point out these sort of errors um, in your commentary, in your in your column in The Australian, uh, in your appearances on the ABC's Insiders. At one point, Louise Milligan uh, put out a tweet um, referring to you saying, I don't want to hear about his, i.e. Jared Henderson's, pedophile-protecting nonsense. That's a pretty serious allegation. Um, how did that make you feel at the time? <laughs> well, I'm used to criticism and I don't, I don't really care very much. 
Uh, but I Ped- did raise ped- that matter. Pedophile protecting? Pedophile protecting? I mean, that's well, doesn't get any lower that. than that. <laughs> well, you can't. But, I mean, I don't go to defamation. Yeah. A lot of people say yeah. very bad stuff about me. I, I mean, you know, I wasn't going to. She accused me of defamation. I never defamed at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, she defamed but, me. I did nothing about it. But I did, of- the, go on. I did write to the ABC managing director, David Anderson, and I said, is this the kind of thing calling someone a pedophile protector, you are comfortable for one of your most senior journalists to do. I mean, is this within Mm. the ABC's ethical and journalistic standards? And David Anderson replied to me. He said, I wasn't aware of this. I'll get back to you. He never did. Because people like David Anderson, the managing director, they don't run the ABC. The ABC is a staff staff collective. It's run by people like Louise Milligan. I mean, all all the various programs run themselves. And whilst... Whilst David Anderson is paid to be managing director and editor of editor in chief, mm. he doesn't act as editor in chief. And in fact, the journalists run it themselves. So people yeah. like Sally Neighbor and Louise Milligan and all this all this yeah. group that they run it. So look, it was highly offensive that you know Milligan fires off at people and is like so many journalists, she's very happy to accuse other people, but say anything about her and she gets terribly offended. So the point, essential yeah. point about Milligan was she never, I wrote her a long letter, it's in the book when her book came out, and she never, ever replied to any request. She only ever had soft interviews on the ABC or at literary festivals, and she never she never debated the Pell case uh, with someone who knew something about the case who disagreed with her. She was a journalist who lacked intellectual courage, yeah. and I make that point in the book. But no, many it, do. Absolutely. I mean, because they like they like criticizing others, but they can't take criticism themselves. Yeah, no, and that's very evident. Um, you, you just also on this point of you know pedophile protecting. Um, you mentioned uh, David Marr and his uh, defending of the photographer Bill Henson, who some years ago was embroiled in controversy because of his exhibitions of photographs that he had taken of topless twelve-year-olds. Um, so clearly, there's you know, some sort of massive double standard going on here, I would think. Well, I criticised Henson at the time that happened. And David Marr, in my, in my newspaper column, and David Marr went on the ABC in Melbourne and criticised me. But the point I make in the book, and I quote some other people saying this as well, yeah. I mean, he, he then published a book on the case which contained photographs of Henson's yeah. photography of naked young 12-year-old girls. They're all girls. And I make the point, I mean, what what if a Catholic bishop had published, who'd liked photography, had published a book uh, or had done photography, which had ended up in a book, which showed naked 12-year-old boys? I mean, what would Ma have said? Ma would have been outraged, but Ma defended Henson. Uh, Now, what we're talking about here is standards, and it's 10 years ago, and he may not do it again today. But Ma, you know, Ma's opposition is always against conservatives. I mean, he's critical, yeah, yeah. as we know, the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, any kind of conservative church he's critical of. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. someone like Bill Henson, if he wants to take yeah. photographs, which is called art, of young prepubescent girls, well, that's okay, that's art. And someone else does it who's a conservative. Um, you know, that's not okay. So David Maher's got these principles, but like like, like so many journalists, he can't stand criticism and gets very upset yeah. if you do yeah. criticise him. I have some examples in the book of Maher just reacting to what I said on Insiders and just going completely yeah. losing it 
in public. No, no, I, I used to enjoy watching you and David on the couch, uh, Jared. It yeah. was very entertaining on Sundays. Yeah, yeah. Jared, can I move on now? Um, there's so much detail in the book, and obviously we can't cover it all today in this interview. I hope this whets people's attitude, ad, appetite to go and read your book. But um, if we just now move on to the High Court and its um, its exoneration of Cardinal Pell, 7 nil. And uh, after that, and this, this was really disturbing, I thought, a number of um, you know, prominent left-wing commentators um, refused to accept that Cardinal Pell had been declared innocent. Lucy Morris Maher of the New Daily, <laughs> a, um, a uh, news outlet owned by um, uh, people's uh, superannuation funds, yes. referred to Cardinal Pell as a former convicted pedophile. Melissa Davey, in public conversation with uh, David Maher, of whom we were just speaking, said to David Ma, he was never declared an innocent man by the High Court. Um, I thought in our Western civilization we had a thing called presumption of innocence. <laughs> well, we, we, we do accept that people would seem that left-wingers don't like. But what I mentioned in the book here, I mean, comments by Ma, Lucy Morris, Ma, John Fain of The Age, Barry Cassidy of the ABC, made comments after the High Court decision which were totally, completely ignorant. They didn't understand the law, although Fain has a law degree. But, um, and there is a presumption of innocence, which means that you're innocent unless you're proven guilty. Now, not only was, was Pell um, had his conviction quashed by the High Court, but it was a stunning 7-0 decision. So all seven judges signed up to it. And it's a devastating critique of the Victorian Director of Public Prosecutions and of the two judges on the Victorian Court of Appeal in the, who were in the majority who rejected Cardinal Pell's case. Now, in a sense, Cardinal Pell was saved by, in one sense saved, by Justice Mark Weinberg, who dissented in the Court of Appeal. Weinberg's background is Jewish. He's not a Catholic. Uh, but it was a devastating 200-page judgment. And Weinberg was the, is regarded, he's now off the court, but he was regarded as the most uh, qualified criminal law jurist in the country. And it was such a compelling dissent that I thought if he did get right of appeal to the High Court and he got something like that, that if it got out of Victoria into the High Court at that stage, his chances were good. And it's a devastating, it's not a long judgment, it's a very well-written judgment, you can find it online. It's, 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 and, but all the judges together, just the problem was the Victorian Director of Public Prosecutions and all the journalists from Louise Milligan to David Maher to Lucy Morris Maher and all the others who were on the, on the anti-Pell part, in the anti-Pell parlon, not one of them, not one of them could explain how the crimes could have occurred after a solemn mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral on a Sunday where there were around 350 to 500 people in attendance and when Pearl was always accompanied uh, and how this, these assaults could have happened without anyone noticing them, I mean, it just it fell apart. And in the end, the Victorian Public Prosecutor, uh, Director of Public Prosecutions, she just couldn't handle the case. Mm. And it, what I've done in my book is put in some of the stuff from the hearings because there was the decision, but before the decision there were two days of hearings, and it's just embarrassing to read it because uh, she just couldn't she just couldn't explain what happened. And so you have now the, the High Court is a bit different today. A couple of people have retired, but this was not a conservative court. Yeah. About half the court had been appointed by the coalition. Around half the court had been appointed by the Labor Party. The most senior, probably the most 
experienced judge in criminal law on the High Court when the Pell case came up was Virginia Bell. She, she's an ABC presenter. She used to present Late Night Live. She's a kind of libertarian. But her crit criticisms of the Victorian Director of Public Prosecutions were devastating because Virginia Bell was a very good lawyer. She was interested in, she's, she understands the presumption of innocence. She understands the importance of evidence. And um, as, as, uh, as Professor Gans of Melbourne University have said that all seven judges on the High Court knew more, more about the case than the Victorian Director of Public Prosecutions did, which is unusual because usually in one of these criminal law cases, one judge sort of runs it and the others follow in. But that didn't happen in this case. The Victorian Director of Public Prosecutions couldn't explain the case. Louise Milligan couldn't explain it. David Ma couldn't explain it. Nobody could. And it was never explained it's because it wasn't explained because it didn't happen. But what people like Barry Cassidy and others are saying are, oh, you know, the High Court didn't find him innocent. Well, only an ignorant person would say that because the High Court never finds anyone ignorant. No court finds, I'm sorry, innocent. Yes. No court finds any person innocent. They find them not guilty beyond reasonable doubt. That's all. That's the standard. So Barry Cassidy and others bring up this other standard. Um, well, I mean, it's just completely ignorant to say that uh, they didn't find Pell innocent. They had no capacity to find Pell innocent. But the high, all seven judges did say that there was a reasonable assumption that an innocent man had been convicted. That goes as as far as any court has ever gone yeah. in, in effectively saying someone's innocent. Yeah, and you'd never know that from the, the media commentary. You do go into um, amazing detail about what happened in St. Patrick's Cathedral there. And um, there were obviously journalists covering um, the various court cases, uh, but they didn't do their job. Uh, it w there should have been commentary about why it was physically impossible, why the times didn't add up, why the prosecution couldn't even uh, establish the dates on which the alleged offending occurred. The, the defence had to give them the dates. All of this sort of stuff was going on. It's a failure of journalism. It's a failure of the law. It's a failure of the uh, public prosecutors, etc. Um, you mentioned, um, you, you have a reference in the book to Walter Duranty, which I thought was fascinating yes. because... He was the famous New York Times reporter in Moscow who refused to see the Ukrainian um, famine, and I think George Orwell came and reported on that, yet he won a Pulitzer Prize and never gave it back. Now, there's been error after error, particularly by the media, but also by the legal fraternity. Um, this is Walter Duranty. It's history repeating itself, is it not? Yes, it is. Well, people like Louise Milligan and others won prizes for their book. Milligan won a couple of prizes for a book, Cardinal, but it's just replete with errors yeah. uh, and it's been demolished by the High Court decision. But that, journalists don't apologise. And, and Durante was shocking because this was at the time of, of, the, of, of uh, Stalin's effectively purge against Ukraine, a forced famine, probably some millions died, possibly four or five million died. And Durante went through the Soviet Union at the time and said what a wonderful place it was. I mean, he was not only an incompetent journalist, he was just a, he was just a, an unmitigated liar. And uh, Malcolm Muggeridge soon after wrote it up and Orwell commented on him. But Muggeridge mm. just demonstrated that what Durante saw, because Muggeridge had gone to, to the Soviet Union uh, around the same time, and he just said what, what Durante saw wasn't what Muggeridge saw. Yep. But he got all these prizes. He got a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on the Soviet Union under Stalin in the early 30s. And there's hardly anything in it that's true. Mm. You, you say in the book, Jared... You 
You say in the book that um, people wanted to believe what they wanted to believe. Uh, that was what Durante was doing about the Soviet Union. The left wanted to believe this utopia could exist. The left in modern-day Australia wanted to believe that the church is this evil institution that must be brought down. And, and you know, this is what we are seeing um, in the absence of evidence. Well, that's right. I mean, what we've got increasingly this way that um, journalists who have become activists. Now, journalists who are not activists examine the evidence and comment on the evidence. But journalists who are activists try to build the case for the prosecution, which is what Milligan did, which is what David Maher did, Lucy Morris Maher did, Melissa Davey did, and and many others. And they get into this area where they believe what they want to believe. So if someone tells you something and it's consistent with your narrative, you believe them. But as I point out in the book, I mean, some of these, you just can't, believe what people tell you Mm. some people tell the truth some people exaggerate some people lie but many people have memories of events that never happened this is very common i made a point in the book on a totally unrelated matter about three well-known australians who have clear memories about their life of events that never happened now they're not liars some people are liars i make the point that carl beach the british guy who made all these allegations about Edward Heath and all these other senior British politicians, he was a chronic liar. He made allegations of child sexual abuse and he's now serving a long prison term for those offences. But most people are not liars, but people have bad memories. They, uh, they have memories of events that never happened. And so just because someone comes up to you and said, oh, look, you know, I saw George Pell doing this, uh, the response is to say, well, that's interesting. I'll, I'll have a look at that, but I also would like to, to ask, ask you about these matters, and I will go and ask someone else if they saw something similar at the same time. They didn't do it. But more importantly, nor did Victoria Police. I mean, on this, Pearl went to prison on five charges, convicted on five charges. There were four in one event, and there was one alleged to have taken place in December, and there was one alleged to have taken place the following February. Now, before the Victorian Magistrates Court, the senior Victorian inspector, Inspector Reid, told the court that the final charge on which Pearl was convicted, this is earlier on, he told the Magistrates Court, they'd never investigated. So Pearl got charged and convicted with a conviction upheld, passed on by the Magistrates Court, a conviction upheld in the, by two judges out of three in the Victorian Court of Appeal, for, for, for a crime which was never, alleged crime, which was never investigated. I mean, this is absolutely extraordinary, yeah. uh, but that's what happened. And yeah. I don't make stuff up. I mean, as you know, the book is just full of quotes and yep. evidence yep. and citations. I don't make it up. I mean, that's what he said. On another occasion, the police was asked why he didn't investigate something. He said, well, I didn't do it because I didn't do it. Now, that's yeah. if, if you tried that in primary school, the teacher would pull you up and say, well, you can't say I didn't do that because I didn't do it. You've got to give a reason why you didn't do it. But that yeah. didn't necessarily. So, so Victoria Police does that. That gets through the magistrate's court. Uh, it gets through the prosecution. Uh, it gets through two of the most senior judges in Victoria, the Chief Justice and the Justice of uh, the President of the Court of Appeal. And eventually it's knocked over by the High Court. But it's an absolute scandal never got that far. But uh, Jared, I think I think that answers um, a question from one of our viewers who's put a comment in the live stream, uh, what reason would the victim have for making up the story is what uh, Jim Bell says. And I think, you know, it's this issue of perhaps faulty memory. Yeah, we don't know why. I, I'm not, I've never said the complainant 
uh, is a liar. I've never said that. Uh, but I have said that, in my view, the complainant has a recollection of an event that never happened. But many, look, I, well, I'd go into an example because it's a, I mean, I've got an example of Kevin Rudd when he was Prime Minister saying he remember going to a test cricket match in Brisbane, but Colin Cowdery was playing in, in the 74-75 series. Now, Cowdery didn't play in that game. He played, he played his first test in Melbourne in that series. Now, Kevin Rudd had this clear recollection of what, watching Lily and Thompson bowling to Cowdery. Cowdery wasn't there. Now, Kevin Rudd's not a liar, you know, but he's mistaken. And people have recollections of events that never happened. There was one case in the Victorian Court of Appeal. The Tyrrell case is only a couple of years old. Uh, where Tyrrell was convicted, he was cleared by different set of judges in the Victorian Court of Appeal. But the complaint in that instance can admitted to the court that one of the allegations on which the person had been convicted Came, or was, was charged with, came from one of his dreams. He said he, he, can, he, he can see that he had a dream. Now, people have dreams. But memory is... The, the memory and is that's, why, that's why the court process is important. You've got to be able to establish timelines and otherwise yeah. anyone could go to jail. Was saying in the, Henrik saying in the case of Carl Bitch, he said, you know, when someone makes an allegation, you've got to say, we regard that very seriously, yeah. but we're going to go and check it. And it would have been better for the complaint in this instance, as Frank Brennan has said in his book, uh, if the police had gone back to him and said, well, hang on, what you're saying here doesn't really hold forward. What you're saying here is contradicted what you told us six months before and talked it through. And it would have been better for everyone if, the, if they'd worked it out and then not gone to these extreme and then have the situation of it's all thrown out. I don't think it was good for complainants generally. I can see that overwhelming majority of complainants are, t are accurate and telling the truth and accurate, but not everyone is. And as Justice Mark Weinberg said in the Court of Appeal, juries almost always get it right. And he said, yeah. and the emphasis on almost, yeah. they usually get it right, but they don't always get it right. And we don't know why people make claims about other people. And I've never, I, in the whole book, I make no hostile comment to the complainant. And I quote George Pell at the front of the book saying that, he bears no ill will to the complainant. But if you're going to say that Pell did the crimes which he's alleged to have done, someone has to say how he could possibly do them on the evidence that was presented to the court. And the, and the Victorian Director of Public Prosecutions couldn't explain it. Um, you've got to say it can't be explained. If it can't be explained, it didn't happen. No, that's right. And that, again, that's why we have standards of evidence, why we have a court system which is well established over hundreds of years. Um, Jared, you've been very generous with your time. I do want to ask uh, um, a couple more questions to finish off. Um, but there is a, a comment from Tom Zevin in the live stream, which I, I do want to take on. We may probably can't really answer the question, but I want to acknowledge it. He says, as a past student of St. Patrick's College and someone when 13 who was directly approached by children who were being sexually, sexually abused at St. Alpius, claiming that Pell was complicit, exclamation mark. What do you say to this? Uh, it's an obvious what school? Yeah, and, and again, well, what I would say, mm. say to this here, well, St Patrick's College in Melbourne closed, I think, in 1968. So that school's been closed for nearly 60 years. Uh, there's never been an allegation of Pell ever assaulting students at St Orpheus. Pell did he's, not. I think um, Tom Zevin is saying that perhaps Pell was complicit. Perhaps he's alleging that Pell was involved. Well, hang on. Well, let me just go back to that. Pell never taught at St Orpheus. He never taught at any school. He, he just lived in the parish for one year. 
as, as priests do. And Paul Bongiorno lived in a parish with Ridsdale for one yeah. year in Warrnambool. Pell did for one year in Ballarat East. Pell uh, never taught at the school. There were no, um, there were no allegations. The, the only allegation I've covered in the book uh, about Pell was in relation to St. Patrick's. We're talking, oh, is he talking about St. Patrick's in Ballarat? I thought he was talking about St. Patrick's in Melbourne. Okay, St. Patrick's in Ballarat. There was one allegation about a priest, not of sexual assault, Pell said to the Royal Commission, look, he probably should have handled it differently. He spoke to the chaplain. Perhaps he should have spoken to the principal. But you have to bear in mind that he was a diocesan priest and the dioceses don't run the religious orders. And, I um, mean, all that's covered in the book. But there are no other allegations about Pell because he didn't really have any relationship with the school. He wasn't yep. involved with the school. I'm sorry, I thought he meant St. Patrick's. Yeah, no, he, he does. He does come well, up. He yeah. St. Patrick's. Well, the problem is you've got a cathedral and a school, St. Patrick's, in both in both cities in Melbourne. But yeah. I mean, you just can't make those kind of allegations. I mean, just because someone says something about something, you've got to say, well, yeah. did it happen? And Pearl had nineteen hours in the Royal Commission, mm. and no one made that allegation about about a school. Yeah. I mean, they were pretty hostile to Pearl, but in the end, they had Peter McClellan had no evidence and his colleagues. So when you don't have evidence, you use terms like it was untenable that Pell didn't know this. Yeah. It's unlikely. Uh, it's it's impossible. These kind of but these terms aren't evidence. There was never any evidence. And had there been evidence, he would have been charged, I assume. Yeah. And he wasn't charged with those offences. So the only charges he faced, he faced no charges in relation to any school at Ballarat. He faced yeah. charges that were withdrawn about... A swimming pool in Ballarat, and they, they were thrown out. And he faced charges about St. Patrick's Cathedral. But uh, the school at Ballarat, I mean, I'm not. Yeah. But no, that's fine, Jed. I appreciate I think Anyone can say anything they like. Anyone can come up yeah. and say something, but the evidence yeah. is is a yeah. check. But, I mean, I've read through all this stuff. I mean... Yeah, no, you're, you're, for, you're absolutely forensic, Jared. Um, just to finish, Jared, um, I think uh, this whole um, Pell case for those of us who are social conservatives, um, some of us have been involved in public commentary on issues that run uh, counter to our culture, the left wing narrative, um, and it's it's a hostile, toxic environment um, many times. Cardinal Pell being convicted uh, in this way, uh, it certainly sent shockwaves through me because I thought. If the left-wing lynch mob, the media pylon that you so well document, can get someone uh, as outspoken on on cultural conservatism, on Christianity as Cardinal Pell, then, then none of us are safe. If the High Court hadn't overturned his conviction, what do you think the environment would be like now in Australia for people like myself and others who uh, who, who like to speak out on these cultural issues? Well, it would be pretty dire, I would say, because it would mean you could be charged and convicted and have your conviction upheld in a very senior court in Victoria on the basis of no evidence. So it would be uh, would be very dire. Now, I make the point in the book, and I mention you in the book, that um, a lot of Pell's supporters or people who thought he wasn't guilty beyond reasonable doubt were not Catholics. And this idea, I mean, certainly some Catholics supported him. Many Catholics opposed him. Well, people who brought up Catholics like Paul Bongiorno and Barry Cassidy and Louise Milligan, they opposed him. So it wasn't a row between the Catholics and the, and, and, and uh, those who were not Catholics or anything. It was, it was really a dispute between someone who felt that a conservative was being picked on because he was a conservative. And I quote Thomas Keneally in the book, 
who, who and she did an introduction to one of he did an introduction to one of Louise Milligan's books. And I go, Keneally, Keneally's complaint was about climate change and uh, and economic policy and stuff. And this is mentioned in his condemnation of Pell. I mean that maybe Keneally's right, maybe Keneally's wrong, and nothing to do with what Pell was charged with. So I think what what happened is that what would have happened is that any conservative who, who put their head up and one allegations made against them, you know, can can get put away. So I think it would have been dive. And I think what's important about the Pell case, and in a way I think it was probably, he wouldn't see it this way, but I mean it was probably better it went through the way it went through because what was emphatic is a 7-0 decision in the High Court and a well-written decision, easy to read, no one's criticised it because there's no way of putting finding holes in it based on the lack of evidence. And But I think without the High Court, and as I said, the High Court was a divided court. It's got left of centre people on it, it's got right of centre people on it, but all seven came together and said no. Mm-hmm. And I think it was uh, great for Australian society in the sense that it meant that people couldn't be picked on because they were conservative, because they were intellectually yeah. unfashionable. Now, in the general community... Uh, that's a different thing. We're talking about people who run the media, people who run the prosecution services, lawyers and stuff. Uh, what's important there is that the High Court said, no, this has gone too far. And Jared, for the reasons yeah. the High Court explained. Yeah. Jared, yeah. just finally, um, you finished the book with a little bit of a swipe at uh, cowardly journalists. And um, what, what's your, uh, sorry, cowardly politicians, my apologies. Um, yeah. we've, we've done, we've talked about the journalists, uh, but the politicians, and, and this again distressed me and continues to concern me about our public discourse is that um, our people are fearful of speaking up in the public square because of what's you know, happened to, to Cardinal Pell, uh, because of what happens to you being called a pedophile protector. All this mud is thrown. What's, what's, what do we need, this is a bit of a Dorothy Dixon, but what do we need to be doing, those of us who care about Australia's cultural direction, those who care about the Christian ethos, um, the, the family, uh, the pro-life issues? What's the lesson that we need to take uh, out of what's just happened? And, um, and this victory that's, that's happened uh, towards uh, one who's on, on our side of, uh, of, of yeah. our thinking. Well, as you know, Lyle, it's tough. It's tough being unfashionable in the circles that you and I mix in, but you just got to stand up. And all, all the great Christian leaders in the past stood up and many great secular leaders stood up. Yeah. Uh, the anti-communists stood up. That wasn't fashionable with anti-communists yeah. in university circles when I was a student either. And many of my good friends like Frank Noffermarker and Hugo Wolfson are older than me, were very strong anti-communists. Neither were a Catholic. They're both of Jewish background. So, and I just make the point about Pell. I mean, Pell got through... But I th- And very few people, a lot of people thought he was treated unfairly. Very few people were prepared to stand up. And I can understand why, particularly for a politician, it's very difficult for a politician to stand up. But enough people stood up to keep a doubt about the case until it got to the High Court. And if some people hadn't mm. stood up, and it wasn't very many of us, and you were one of them, but there were, you know, there were enough, enough to raise doubts about the case and so I think the only lesson is that however tough it is to be unfashionable, however tough it is to be criticised by people unfairly about your alleged motives and whatever else, the thing to do is get up and proclaim what you believe to be the truth. And if you're wrong, people will correct you. But what I notice in relation to this book, 
and it's been out now two months, that the people I criticise in the book, David Marr, Louise Milligan, Lucy Morris Marr, mm -hmm. Melissa Davey, Paul Bongiorno, Barry Cassidy, John Fain, not one of, and no one on the ABC has come to me and said, you're wrong there. And the ABC manager director has said to me just yesterday, and that'll be published in my media watchdog shortly, he said, mm -hmm. look, you know, you know, we, we cleared, we, we, we covered it right. And I, I'm going to go back and say, well, you covered it right because you set up your own inquiry and they said you were fine. But but if a few people hadn't stood up, it would have been a dire circumstances for all of us. So all I can say is, you know, bite the bullet and be strong. That's mm. the message. Mm. Well, well, Jared, thank you so much for writing this book. Uh, that's it there, Cardinal Pell, The Media Pylon and Collective Guilt. Uh, it's available through uh, Connor Court Publishing, uh, through their website, uh, presumably through the Sydney Institute as well, Jared. Yeah, you can get it through, through the Sydney Institute, uh, just on our website and also bookshops uh, and most of the major distribution channels. But you won't, you won't read about it or hear about it or see about it on the ABC. And nor did Frank Brennan and nor did Keith Winchell. So the three of us did books. Winchell yeah. got two interviews. Frank Brennan got none. I've got none. The ABC is just covering up its own mess. But you can buy the book, folks, and uh, and but Cotter Court is a very good publisher, and uh, you can get it here and elsewhere. I, I support bookshops. I, d I don't want you to walk away from the bookshop. We've got to keep our uh, bookshops going. So uh, uh, it, it, it is in bookshops, and they, if if it's not there, a bookshop bookshop will order it. Well, well, thanks again, Jared, for your generosity with your time, for the service thanks, you've Tom. done to the conservative and Christian cause in emboldening us by providing this uh, detail. All the best, Jared. Thanks, thanks very much. Thanks, thanks a lot. Okay, bye. Well, that's it for the Macquarie Street political podcast this week. Thanks so much for being with me. I hope you've been challenged by what you've heard and today that you are motivated to play your part in the fight to preserve the place of Christianity in the public square. Please help others see what you have just seen by sharing this content on your social media platforms. That in itself is a courageous act of defiance to those who are seeking to cancel us and it is also a way of standing in solidarity with those who are under fire. Special thanks to Dave Pellow and his team at the, our volunteers at the Good Source News for the production of the Macquarie Street Political Podcast. Until next week, bye for now.